So we're walking down Avenue Hopi Borgiba, which is really the sort of main drag in Tunis. It's kind of the equivalent to the Champs-Élysées or Fifth Avenue. Um, It's not a place where people live. It's a place where people go out. Remember the mall before the internet? A place where everyone would meet up and hang out, even if you didn't really have a plan? In Tunis, that's Habib Bourguiba, the main avenue through the Ville Nouvelle, the part of Tunis the French built in the 1800s. It stretches from the edge of the Lake of Tunis all the way up to the Medina, and is lined with four-star hotels, flagship retail stores like Zara, government offices, and dozens of little cafes with crowded terraces packed full of people. Even though it's quarantine, I feel like this is sort of a classic example of, like, life on Habib Bourguiba. So there's hundreds of people out milling around, having a coffee, doing their shopping. So many young women dressed up to impress. And it's everyone, right? There's, like, kids with, and their parents. There's young people. There's older gentlemen who are hanging out here probably every single day. There's people out on dates and having their little their little promenade. And then about halfway up the block, there's just this like crowd of people that are having a political argument. Uh, there was a protest earlier today. And this is how it goes. This dynamic, something intense and active happening right in the middle of things and folks just kind of walking on by, you know, gotta get that pastry and coffee with my girlfriends, is maybe a good analogy of what being in Tunis in January 2011 was like. All through December and January, most of Tunis was going about their business largely unperturbed by the growing protest movement. Folks were swept up in New Year celebrations and upcoming exams at school and university. The protests still felt like they were someone else's cause, someone else's problem. To be fair, the government was working pretty hard to keep up that illusion, and it wasn't as if folks were getting updates on the protests from the nightly news. But after the sniper attacks in Tala and other interior towns, the political weather started to shift in Tunis. All these threads we've been following, the student movement, the marginalized youth, the old union activists, the bloggers, and the folks following along on satellite or social media, were on a collision course with the government, and it would all come crashing into Tunis in one spot. You know, it's, it's crazy. You're kind of walking down the catwalk of Tunis on this tree-lined avenue. And about three-quarters of the way down, you hit the barricades. Yeah, I mean, it's the Ministry of the Interior. So it's just closed off completely to foot traffic, to car traffic. There's guards posted all around it. Um, and it's not like inconspicuous or out of the way. It's right on one of the corners of the big traffic circle at the end of the avenue going around the like fountain and the clock tower. It looks like sort of a brutalist masterpiece from the Soviet era, which is, is really out of character for Habib Bourguiba, which has all these beautiful sort of Art Nouveau French facades. And then it's just this gray block with barred windows with spikes on them at the end of the avenue. I mean, I think this building in many ways represents the worst aspects of everything Tunisia used to be. How so? You have this like place that's 
a center of cultural and commercial and everyday life that's and there's just this intrusion of the government into it yeah they sh- they should have torn this down a long time ago From the Agora Podcast Network, this is Revolution One. Today's episode, Degej. So, Cyrus, if you remember from the end of last episode... Lamine's first reaction to the protests heating up across the country was a kind of relief. Right, because the universities were in the middle of the exam period, and he was hoping to get out of taking his finals, right? Exactly. I mean, I don't blame him. When I was in college, I think most students would have done just about anything to get an extra week of study during finals. Or procrastination time if you were more like me in college. And while I'm sure most of the students were in Lamine's camp that week of hoping for a few extra days with their books... Aza Bali and her fellow student union members were desperately hoping that exams would be canceled for another reason. We were trying to think how to get to make it move to the capital. Um, it wasn't uh, an easy job, so what we did is that trying uh, to make strikes in the university itself. Sometimes trying to get out of uh, the walls of our universities, but we were, we had to sit for exams. That was quite a delicate period, actually. Aza and the other UGET members were spending all their time and energy pulling together protests in between sitting for their exams in an attempt to get the movement fired up in the capital. So we we did shifts, actually. I remember that people used to sit for the exams. Others are in the square making speeches or like there were confrontations with the police. And then (laughs) we go back to our um, classrooms, we sit for the exams and vice versa. She'd show up for her finals horse, covered in sweat and thrumming with adrenaline from the protests and clashes with the police happening both inside and outside the walls of the university. And she wasn't the only one who was sweating. The um, uh, administration used to beg uh, the leaders of UJET not to uh, make things escalate because they don't want the, us to um, sit for the exams. Because if we suspend the exams, it means like we suspend it's, it's uh, the year and we will have to go back home. And this is when they are afraid of students. They, they know that they are the locomotive of uh, protests. The administration knew that if they canceled exams, everyone would be sent home, back to their neighborhoods or towns across the country with heads full of radical ideas and nothing but free time on their hands. The government was terrified of that possibility, particularly as word about the sniper attacks spread and protests began to bubble up in the working-class neighborhoods on the outskirts of Tunis. And that's where we meet back up with Malik, who had driven back from Tala through the night to organize a protest with his comrades. There's a poor working-class neighborhood in Tunis where a lot of displaced folks from Tala live. So our idea at the beginning was to start the demonstrations there, since we figured there'd be solidarity with the people in Tala and Kasserin. After what he'd seen in Tala, Malik felt an urgency that wasn't yet widespread among opposition leaders. 
The political parties at the time weren't demanding the toppling of the regime. They weren't on board with the slogans of the revolution. They were demanding that the regime reform, uh, release some prisoners, and provide freedom of speech. But we were saying, down with the regime. It was a crazy demand. While we were meeting to coordinate, we heard that there was a clash between a street vendor and a police officer in Tadam, uh, the biggest working-class neighborhood in Tunis, and that things were escalating to a fist fight and a bit of chanting. We were close by, like maybe five minutes away, so we rushed over. It was about six o'clock and the night was falling. Things were heating up, so we just started from there. Etedamen is this densely packed warren of a neighborhood on the outskirts of Tunis. It sprung up in the 1960s as thousands of rural Tunisians streamed into the capital on the promise of finding work in the budding industrial sector. But for many, those jobs never materialized, and residents of the neighborhood were just as marginalized as they had been when they were living in the interior. They felt the desperation of having been forgotten and neglected for decades. The neighborhood itself reflects that neglect. Built haphazardly, there was no central planning, and only one major road cuts through the area. So when protests started, the police were at a distinct disadvantage. Protesters drew the security forces into the neighborhood, down into the narrow alleys, then pelted them with rocks from the rooftops. They dodged tear gas and rubber bullets as they weaved in and out of the blind corners and courtyards of the neighborhood. Malik and the other resistance leaders helped give shape to their rage. They led chants of work, freedom, national dignity, and down with the regime. They saw their strategy taking hold. The protests were raging in Tadaman. I went home and organized a meeting with several of the resistance leaders in an area downtown. Um, we were on our way when the regime announced the curfew. So it was illegal to be out past 10 p.m. and violators would be shot. Undeterred by the curfew, Malik slipped back out into the streets and met up with his fellow organizers. But the meeting would be cut short. They uh, found out where we were and uh, raided the place. So another journey began that ended in the basement of the Ministry of the Interior. Malik disappeared and he knew that he's going to be arrested because his mother said he like he took a jacket and left because he was afraid that they might come to look for him in his house and he didn't want his family to go through this again. At the time, I knew that he was in uh, Tadaman with uh, another friend of ours. And then uh, the last call, he was like, I, I'm, I'm going back home. And then I was reading on Facebook that he, uh, they, they cannot join him. I tried to call him, uh, he, I, I could not. I even still remember the, uh, the first friend who put uh, this post on Facebook. She was like, uh, does anyone know anything about Malik? Because uh, we're trying to join him, but we could not because uh, he was in Atalam and I think they followed him or something like that. The pit that was growing in Azza's stomach wasn't just a hunch. Malik and five other resistance leaders had been grabbed off the street and handcuffed with hoods thrown over their heads as they were shoved into a van. They were taken to a police station where they were lined up against the wall and abused 
physically and verbally. After several hours of that, they were loaded back into the van and driven down to Avenue Habib Orgiba to the Ministry of the Interior. We used to hear stories about what happened in the Ministry of the Interior. Or uh, you'd read about prison in novels. It might sound crazy, but I was kind of pleased. It's a badge of honor for, for an activist and fighter, being arrested, the torture. During my student activism, I'd been arrested and stopped a lot, but I'd never landed in the Ministry of the Interior. So I knew I was going to a place that was awful, but I was kind of happy thinking I'd go there and see it firsthand. No matter what happened, I'd see with my own eyes this part of the regime and its capacity for cruelty. We were students. Most of us were 23 or 24 years old. We were young. We hadn't fired bullets. We didn't do anything hostile or kill anyone. It never crossed our minds that the regime would treat us the way they did. Malik and his comrades were shackled, dragged into the sub-basement, and thrown in a dank cell. A pile of filthy, bloody linens lay in the corner. When their eyes adjusted to the darkness, they realized two corpses were lying underneath. What had those men done? Malik wondered. They sat for hours in silence before the guards arrived and dragged them out one by one. Malik, who was the last one left in the cell, heard the wails and screams of his friends as the guards beat and brutalized them. When his turn came, he described it as an out-of-body experience. Floating above his body, watching his guards stomped, kicked, and rained their fists down on his head and stomach and back. They dragged him, bleeding, back to a new cell to wait for interrogation. They split up the six of us who got arrested together, so we couldn't communicate. We couldn't find out what the interrogators wanted from us. And the cells were underground, right under Avenue Habib Burgiba. The avenue of lights and cafes and the cells underground. In the morning, the questioning started. The interrogations were terrible. They took place on the third floor. So we walked up three flights of stairs, shackled hand and foot, with a hood and something metal over our heads. One of the detectives came in and thumbed through Malik's thick file. He smiled and said, I interrogated your father in the 90s. Still bleeding from one ear, Malik raised his head and replied, May God grant you a long life so you can interrogate my son. It became clear that they were planning to frame us for these big charges, conspiring against the regime, sedition, and possibly even murder. That, and they planned to paint us as working with foreign interests to say that we were traitors. In their eyes, we were a group of conspirators plotting against the regime. But of course, they had no tangible proof. The detective would ask a couple of questions, and if you seemed in any way hesitant, he'd leave and the beasts would come in. For days on end, it went like this. Questioning, beating, questioning, beating, rinse and repeat. The students didn't produce the confessions the interrogators wanted, and so the brutality grew worse. One officer seemed to take particularly sadistic pleasure in his job. He threw Malik to the ground and bit a chunk of flesh from his neck, before slamming his fist into Malik's already bleeding ear. 
Later that night, after he regained consciousness, Malik scratched Uzzah's name in the wall of his cell. He was sure that, like so many political prisoners before him, he would die in that dark and damp hell. After the protests began in Etadhaman, the regime canceled school and sent all the students home and began to lock down the capital. Protests were erupting in Benali strongholds, including Hamamet, where Azza had rejoined her family while still desperately searching for news of Malik. When things turned out to be a bit serious, my father asked us to pack so that we go back to Sidi Bouzid. And I remember his expression was like, if you are to die, let's do it uh, home. <laughs> yeah. Though her family lived in Hamamet, their tribal roots were in a small town of the Sidi Bouzid government. Her father feared the situation was devolving rapidly, so they packed their bags, piled in the car, and drove to Azza's grandparents' house five hours away. Her family were pretty conservative and didn't really buy into the concept of a boyfriend, so Azza had to tamp her panic down. I tried to keep in touch with my friends, asking about Malik and the guys, no information. She'd gotten in touch with a lawyer who told her, essentially, the justice system had shut down. And he was like, Azza, I'm sorry, but we cannot really know, because... Uh, like, no courts, no police stations, no one to address. Uh, like, we have no clue. We, we just have to wait. That waiting and not knowing was excruciating, not least because in her grandparents' small town, she wasn't allowed out on the street to protest as a woman. I mean, I had nothing to do. So it was rather Facebook. Uh, we had this um, with a group of friends. We had a secret group on Facebook. We were like less than 10 people. And uh, you know that some of them, I mean, I know who they are now. I know, I know them on Facebook, but we have never met. <laughs> Not yet. We, we made this daily uh, kind of magazine. It's called The Diaries of a Revolution. So what we did is that try to collect information, like our, an alternative for media. So we collect information, we translate them into French, English, uh, stuff like that, and then PDF, and we diffuse it on the internet or posts. This is all we, this is all I could do at least. I mean. But the whole time she was working on Diaries of a Revolution, the only thing she could think of was Malik. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was so afraid, but then it was like, uh, yeah, we, we were expecting this. This is the tax to pay. Like we kept raising slogans for years and uh, we will die for this country. And we're, but then when when it happens to the closest person to you, 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 you start reconsidering some... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really tough. While Aza searched for news of Malik and helped disseminate information online from Sidi Bouzid, things in the rest of the country were heating up. The protests Malik helped organize on the outskirts of the capital had spread, and on the 13th of January, the UGTT called for a general nationwide strike. That day, thousands of people came out to protest in front of the UGTT offices in downtown Tunis and in front of the Ministry of the Interior. They had a message for Ben Ali. Degej. Get out. It was the fundamental shift Malik had been hoping for. Up until then, the opposition had been demanding reforms or easing of censorship. 
But now those parties and the unions understood and were making their voices clear. The only future for Tunisia was one without Ben Ali. That night, Ben Ali addressed the nation again. But unlike his speech just three days earlier, when he promised harsh crackdowns and a firm hand, this one was conciliatory. I have heard you, he said in the local dialect instead of in classical Arabic. He promised to end censorship of social media and YouTube and step down at the end of his term and let a new administration take over. The speech sent a jolt of ice water through Uzzah's veins. On the 13th, after the speech of Ben Ali, and, uh, we, we felt like the speech would make people calm down a bit. That was very, it was a very um, scary moment. If the momentum of the revolution stalled, she feared the worst for Malik and the other resistance leaders who were with him. That night, a crowd of pro-Ben Ali supporters gathered in front of the Ministry of the Interior after his speech. The prison guards took the opportunity to let Malik and the others know that the tides of the revolution were turning against them. They, they opened the windows and made them listen to the uh, slogans of people who were uh, proponents of Ben Ali and the regime. So sometimes you feel like hope, and you're strong, and uh, the people will make it. And sometimes it's just uh, a nightmare. But what Malik and Azad didn't know is that the work they'd seeded and that had been amplified and disseminated by folks like Lina ben Mahenyi and Henda Shanawi, it was starting to take roots in places they never anticipated. The, the movement got viral on social media. People started discussing, okay, we need to do something as well, and, and how, how can we contribute to this? Lamin Benghazi, who we met last episode, and thousands of other well-off coastal Tunisians had been sitting on the sidelines of the revolution, cautiously watching it unfold on social media and satellite TV. But by the 13th, something in him had changed. I don't know what happened, but I think that people started feeling a duty to support their fellow um, protesters in other regions. And I think that was the beginning of the building of this people as a protester against the regime. It started melting people together and creating this viral movement. When he saw a call for people not to heed Ben Ali's pleas for calm, to show up on the 14th on Habib Bourguiba and demand his departure, Lamine knew his time had come. The day has been decided. It was in Tunis. Everything was there. There was absolutely no reason not to go except all the obvious ones. I didn't sleep the night before because this was today or never. This was the answer to our question of how can we contribute. We don't have the legitimacy of people who started this, but if we don't do this, we'll regret it for the rest of our days. If we don't go out today, uh, whatever happens, and it was still unclear what would happen. Lamine grabbed his jacket and told his mother he was headed to a friend's place to study. But he headed downtown instead, figuring if people were out, they'd be out on Habib Bourguiba. And they were. There was this huge amount of people. just absolutely never saw that in front of the Ministry of Interior. Despite fears that Ben Ali's speech had lowered the temperature, more people were out on the streets than the day before. I can tell you from experience that counting a crowd is a futile effort. But observers say that more than 40,000 people took to the streets that day in Tunis alone. 
Dozens of other protests were held in cities around the country, and it was all mostly spontaneous. Henda recalled walking out of her building in the downtown neighborhood of Lafayette and seeing people from the area coming out onto the street and asking one another, where should we go? And then just heading towards the main thoroughfare. This feeling of an entire population uniting against the police, against the dictator, but it didn't feel that way. It felt like a people uniting after the national team wins or something. It was festive in a way. While the crowds amassed, yelling Degege, Degege, outside the Ministry of the Interior, inside the building and in back rooms across the capital, Ben Ali's regime was crumbling. The Minister of the Interior had been fired on the 13th. The security forces were failing Ben Ali, and he was furious. Their inability to quash the protest left him with one final Hail Mary. He tried to mobilize the army to put down the protesters with force. But General Rashid Amar, the head of the armed forces, refused. Then, the head of the presidential guard, a man named Ali Sayati, told Ben Ali his men might not be able to guarantee his safety or the safety of his family. The president locked himself in his palace as he grasped for his next move. As the center of power weakened, the chain of command in the security forces went haywire. Individual officers and commanders took decision-making into their own hands. Rumors and warnings circulated on social media that the security forces or army were planning to use live rounds on protesters. Lamine had pushed his way deep into the crowd on Habib Bourguiba when suddenly a volley of loud pops sounded. You don't know if it's tear gas. When you hear the sound and you never heard it before, it could be bullets. You don't know. And your your heart starts racing. Everyone starts running. I think it reaches your mouth before your eyes so you have this uh, metal taste in your in your mouth and it just happens so quickly that you don't have time to think and people just start running and you run <laughs> you don't even know what's going on but but you run the protests evolved into a street battle tear gas and pepper bombs along with live rounds met protesters across the city for hours they confronted the police and security forces who pushed them back with brute force Lamine ran for his life. I was one of the lucky people who managed to, uh, to escape and to find my way uh, home again. As he wound his way through the streets of downtown and back to Carthage, a new sensation washed over him. I, I, I went home with this feeling of excitement and still unknown. And I, it was the first time that I confronted the police. I mean, we were born and raised with the fear of of the police officer, of the uh, police uniform. So to me and to many people in my generation, that was a huge leap in in the unknown. And while Amin was running for his life, so was another person, Ben Ali. After his head of security informed him that he would be unable to protect him, Ben Ali quickly loaded his family, and according to some reports, cases full of gold bullion, onto the presidential jet, and fled. But neither the protesters nor the security forces facing off with them on the ground knew it, and they continued to battle on the streets until nightfall. By the time the police had cleared the streets that night, the news started to leak. Ben Ali was gone. 
بان عليها رب الشعب التونسي بان عليها رب for watching the news my grandmother my uncles and uh, aunts and then uh, they said that Ben Ali fled the country so I remember they were like uh, jumping and crying and uh, but I, I was a bit um, still uh, I wasn't that happy well I was so happy but I was still thinking about the guys and I was wondering like I was wondering if we were really honest when we, when we used to say that we are ready or like eager to um, I mean to surrender our lives for the country Ben Ali was gone. The revolution had succeeded. Everything Azan Malik had been fighting for for the last five years, and that generations of activists before them had struggled for too, it had all come to fruition. But the elation was short-lived. No one knew what would come next or who was calling the shots. A wave of uncertainty flooded the nation as people were glued to their TVs that night. No one felt that uncertainty more than Melek and Azza. We had no idea that Bin Ali fled on the 14th of January. Even now there are a lot of questions about what really happened that day. We heard shots fired from down the hall. I think they probably executed some prisoners. But I remember that evening. We were in this... Ragged, disgusting cell. The door was metal and it had a small window. We communicated with the guards by knocking on the window to ask for water or whatever. On that day, for the first time, the guard opened the window by himself and said, the boss left, and then closed the window. The boss left? Was it his boss? The minister of the interior? The president, Ben Ali? Even if it was Ben Ali, what was going to happen to us? Would they execute us? The thing is that we don't, we didn't really know where he was, if he's dead, if he's still, because prisons were on fire and uh, some people escaped, others died, people were tortured, so like all scenarios were there. I couldn't really figure out I mean, how I really felt. Okay, Ben Ali uh, fled uh, the country. People are happy. Uh, uh, people died. Uh, people disappeared. And I was like, I mean, and then I, I started to realize, okay, yeah, we were fighting for this. And then it happened. But Melik doesn't, I mean, I don't even know where he was. I was like, is it worth it uh, now that he's gone? Revolution One is produced by me, Aaron Brown, and Cyrus Rodell. Tim O'Keefe is our composer and engineer. Thanks this week to Sethi Sahar for voicing Malik and to Farat Al-Hateb for help with translations. We recorded this episode at La Fabrique in downtown Tunis. Join us next time for episode seven, where we plunge into the chaotic aftermath of the revolution and find out what's next for Malik, Azza, and the country. We also want to take a second to tell you about the Intelligence Speech Conference coming up on April 24th. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. Cyrus and I will be appearing alongside David Crathar of History of England, Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, and Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative History, along with 40 other great content creators. With 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams, there will be a lot to discover. Interact with your favorite show hosts and fellow fans in an immersive conference experience. 
Tickets are $30, but are available for $20 as an early bird special. You can find them online at intelligentspeechconference.com shop, and be sure to use our code, REVOLUTION, for an extra 10% off. Hey, thanks. We'll see you next time.